If you are visiting with us this morning, it is a pleasure to have you with us. If you're family, welcome back. It's always good to see you. I am really excited for what God's going to share this morning. Um, Any bonus points go out to um, someone who guesses where I just read from. Daniel, bonus point to Ivan, chapter three, yes, triple points to Ivan, nice. That is where we are going to find ourselves reading from this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, jump over to Daniel chapter three. We're going to be reading about King Nebuchadnezzar. I like to call him King Nebi because it's easier to say. King Nebi, but he is not the star of the show. God is the star of this show. And, um, and he becomes the star through three boys who were taken from Babylon. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well done. Youth, I haven't heard any answers from over there yet. Oh, it's coming soon. Yeah, good. Good, good, good. Give me a wave if you've found Daniel chapter 3. There we go. Awesome. Those of you who aren't waving, I hope you're still looking, not just not looking at your Bible. All right. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So all of those people that I just said and other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebi had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, just side note, I reckon I would have been a herald, eh? Because I'm like loud enough and people love me. So I think they would have listened. Okay, so the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebi has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard music of all kinds, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that the king had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of God, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, boys, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to do to rescue from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Everybody say, we do not need to defend ourselves. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. 
and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with the boys and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up the boys and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So the boys came out of the fire, the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that not a, the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are one who meets us in the fire, in the midst of obedience that you are a God who calls forth from us our needs to only be, only be bowed to you. A worship that would go high, a worship that would go deep, a knowledge and understanding of you that would leave us trembling before you. That you call us to know the fear of you in order that the fear of man could never sway us. Would you speak to us this morning, God, where we're at? Every person in this room, every heart that is opened, would you speak in a way that would be like handprints and wet concrete? That this would define something in all of our lives. Forever recognised as a moment where we learnt something deeper of the character of you. Where we praise together as family and worship your name. Amen. I have, for a really long time, loved the story of these boys because I think um, the rebellious part of me loves that they were rebellious, you know? But they, they weren't disrespectful, they were rebellious. Even in their rebellion, they continued to refer to the king as the king. He was your majesty. They weren't rude. They didn't... Um, They didn't despise the king. There's no sense of that in here, but they were rebellious because they knew who God was and what they stood for. And I think it's it's long, like I remember reading this story probably at about 15 at a youth group and thinking to myself, "Would would I bow down? You know, 
Like if the blazing furnace was heated up and a king stood before me, would I bow? Maybe I would stand the first time like these boys did, but would the second time when he gave me another opportunity, would I actually fall to my knees and apologize? Indirectly, by falling to my knees, I'm apologizing to the king that I did not bow the first time. And it's a really hard question because then I would have said, yeah, yeah, I would have stood tall. Yeah, totally. But did I actually mean it? Nah, not at all. Not at all. I was not willing to give up my life for that. You know, like, wouldn't I be of more value if I bowed then and then had more years to tell everyone about God? Right? That works. But these boys didn't. And, and I think there's like, this just been this journey. I'm 26 now, just super old. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and I just, I've been on this kind of, you know, up and down journey. And I'm, I'm being honest about that because there's not, there's not been this solid point in my life where I could say no to the king standing in front of me. There's not been this time when I specifically recognize. There have been times, but it's not this like, been, been this deep conviction. And, and it just, it comes back over and over and over again. We were at Acts Conference a few years ago, um, and one of the pastors there, I don't even remember who it was, but he said he used to ask the question of his church, not are you willing to live for Jesus in a salvation message, but are you willing to die for him? And I have, it's, it's been one of those lines, I couldn't tell you the rest of the sermon, but it's been one of those lines etched into my memory. He was pastoring in an Asian church um, in Asia, and he he literally said he won't ever preach a salvation message where he asks people to stand if they're willing to live for Jesus, but instead asks them to stand if they're willing to die for him. And that's different than us being willing to die to ourselves, because we do hear that, right? But this is actually being willing to die for God, not just stand and live for him. And these boys do that. They, they are, they're actually willing to die for him. And I think I just have, I've been so familiar with the God of grace, the God who loves me unconditionally, who sent his son for me, who pours his favour out on me, that I've become disconnected from the God that is actually just and righteous and the king of the universe. We've learnt a God of grace for so long that we've taken only that part of him and lost this fear of God that would cause us to say, I'm willing to die for him. Because in this case, these boys, I believe, had this conviction that was so deep that the fear of God was greater than fear, little f, of man. Nothing thrown against them could sway them because they knew the fear of God. Because God is God. He is almighty, all righteous, all just. And while he is also entirely loving and entirely gracious, he actually is still God, the king of the universe. And while I was away on holiday, this is what, I mean, I wasn't praying for a message. I was, I was literally just sitting in front of the lake, spending time with God. And he specifically said to me that this is what I was to speak on. And it's been really hard for the last couple of weeks because when you write a message, you better be darn sure that you're living it out. <laughs> right? 
I don't just get to preach about the justice of God if I've not actually experienced it in my own life, if I'm not actually willing to die for him. And there's been a really, like, a, seriously, the last three weeks of, like, this, this intense call to understand who God is and the reverence that we should have for him, which is a, a stretch when I am so comfortable with Papa, whose lap I crawl up onto, who knows me so well, who I feel so comfortable being in the presence of, that sometimes I forget he's the king. That's the beauty of our relationship, is that I would know him that intimately, that I would know the king so intimately that I would forget he's the king. How beautiful. How gracious that God would allow us to know him like that. But he's still the king. And God has been pointed this morning around teaching the church, not just this church, but us as a church. We need to actually talk about the bigness of God, not just the grace of God, because when we only talk about the grace of God, we're doing ourselves and the world a disservice. Grace is awesome when everything's going well. And when things get hard, grace and unconditional love are harder to comprehend because we start to ask questions like, well, why would a good God do this to me? Why would he let me go through this? Why me and not them? Why them and not me? What have I done wrong? When we understand the fear of God, those questions very quickly become insignificant because we understand that God is God. He gets to do what he wants. We're along for the ride. A really fun ride. But he gets to do what he wants. And those questions actually start to pale in comparison to the bigness of God. When we understand a deep conviction of the fear of God, I mean, these boys could have been like, they literally could have turned around and said, you know what? God will forgive us. Boys, God will forgive us. He loves us. He's gracious. He'll forgive us if we just don't bow this one time. Tomorrow, Lord, tomorrow, I'll, you know, I'll stand. Next week, when Nebby's not in such a bad mood, next week, I'll stand. They could have said that, but they didn't because there's this deep conviction of the fear of God this trembling that they approach him with, that he is God, that they would rather be killed by man than be disobedient to God. And I, I love that, that um, just that line that I read out in worship. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know. There's no pride here. They're not up there like, yeah, God's going to save us. Just you watch. They're not, they're not. There's no pride. There's no arrogance. They're not wearing grace around their necks like a hall pass, get out of jail free card. Looky here, everyone. Here I am. They literally know that there is a chance that God won't save them. They're still willing to die for him. That's what makes it so powerful. Is that they're not standing there like, look, maybe we should ask him first. Do you reckon he'll save us? Do you reckon? Nah. Nah, he will. He will. Okay, let's do it. 
they're not doing that. They, they actually just stand their conviction that deep that they don't even question it because to obey God is more important than to obey man. And there is a commandment that says, do not worship any other gods. Yeah. And when you hear that from the God of the universe, it's different than hearing it from Papa. Isn't it? That's important that we understand the two of those things. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, and of the Holy One is understanding. We have to understand that grace and fear are not opposites. Somewhere along the line, we equated fear with wrath and judgment and justice. That's, that's not fear. We're not to be scared of the Lord. Fear is a deep reverence, a position of awe. When we come, when we fall to our knees because we cannot believe that the King of the universe is standing in front of us and wants to talk to us. When we cannot open our mouths because what could we possibly say to the King of Kings that would mean anything? When every part of our being is shaking at the presence of God. That's fear. It's, it's not being scared of the wrath that God has. And we're in the... In the opposition that we've made fear and grace, we've decided that the Old Testament God is the mean one, right? And we've made the New Testament God the nice one. Yeah, there's not two gods. There is one God and he cannot change his character. His character is good when he is angry and his character is good when he is saving the boys from the fire. He is one God. Grace and fear are, that he is all wrath. He is all justice. He is all judgment. He's also all grace and all love. But we hear that all the time. We actually need to learn to position ourselves back in front of a God that we fear, not just Papa that we have known so intimately. I think the best way to explain this is um, with dads. Because good dads seem to have this balance pretty down pat where they can like really tell you off and then the next minute, it's all great. You know? Okay, now I have my dad who was the disciplinarian in our house. Yeah, mum tried, didn't give two hoots, Okay. And so the, the, the regular phrase in our household, because I was the naughty one, was, wait till your dad gets home. And then I'd be like, okay. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'd stop what I was doing because there was this like fear that I had of my father. I wasn't scared of him. He never hurt me. He didn't abuse me, throw me into walls. I'm sorry if that has been your experience. I don't make light of that. But he didn't do that to me. I wasn't scared of him, but I certainly had a fear of him. There was this deep reverence that I had for him, a respect that I had for him because he was the dad. And I knew what was coming. If I was mean to mum, as he used to so often point out to us, he chose mum, he just had us. <laughs> so, so actually, we knew, we knew where things stood in the house. There was no, there was no, um, Blurred lines over who was the parent. None. 
Okay? Now, I also have PP as a dab. All right? Same thing. If he needs to tell us off, you bet your bottom dollar we're getting a telling off. But he does it as a dad. I'm not scared of him, but I respect him. And as you get older, that doesn't change. The adult to adult conversation changes, but he's dad's still dad and dad's still dad. That doesn't change. I can be laughing with them. We can play cards. We can eat food together. We can have awesome conversations. I know that either of them are willing to give me a hug when I need one. I know all of those things. They're not different people when they're nice and when they're not. It's, it is not this nice, not nice. There's dad and dads understand the importance of disciplining children and of loving them. And good dads seem to have this balance pretty all right. Now, our earthly fathers won't ever, you know, perfect that balance. But God is God. And when he's disciplining me, he's not different from the God who wants to give me a cuddle later on. But I have to understand that he's still God. And if I don't come to a place where I actually understand he is still God, what happens is the, the analogy breaks down here when parents try to be best friends. That's when the analogy stops working. When parents want to be friends more than they want a parent. When parents want to be loved by their children more than they want to discipline them. When they really want their seal of approval, that's where the analogy breaks down. Because you know what happens in that household? Is that respect and the lines that get blurred because grace is the only thing preached. You have children who do not know who the parents are. They start to rule the roost. Guess what we do with God when we decide grace is the only way that we approach him? We start to rule the roost. He says, do something. We're like, mm, not today. I don't feel like that. Are you joking? I don't want to do that. Oh, let's bargain. <laughs> who loves a good bargain? Me, with the Lord, regularly. Guess who loses? Me, regularly, with the Lord. You know why? Because he's the parent and because I've actually decided that it's okay for him to discipline me. I remember saying that to a group of friends once that God had disciplined me on something and they all looked at me like I had lost my mind. God should be disciplining you. He should be rebuking you. He should be telling you to come into alignment with things. And if he's not, your ears are probably turned off. God is God all of the time. He is all gracious. He is all loving, but He's also all just and He's all righteous. And we were extended grace. He gave us grace because He wanted to have a relationship with us. And in order to do that, He needed grace because He is all holy. And in all of my unholiness, I needed Jesus to be the sacrifice that clothed me in white robes in order that I would actually approach the holiness of God intimately. When we understand the fear of God, everything in our world has to shift. When we understand only the grace of God, hard things are still really hard things because we don't actually know who God is. That's the difference, I think, in when, when I look around respectfully at different situations and people walking different situations, there are those who clearly... <laughs> have this fear of God deep within them, that nothing would shake that, 
that God is still God and they don't go to him begging for answers to questions that they don't actually have the patience to listen for. People who have decided or only ever been taught, which is a church thing, people who have only ever been taught that God is a God of grace, start to ask really hard questions that no answer will do justice for. We have to understand that much like a parent feeding their child vegetables in that two and three year old age where all they ask is why, there's a certain period where that's really cute. You know, where we start to explain things at a level that they can understand. But you're not about to explain to a two-year-old that the reason that they're eating vegetables is because the macronutrients are good for their bodies. We tell them it makes them big and strong. We don't say, here's all the macronutrients and here's why we're eating broccoli and carrots and corn. Now at eight, we expect that those questions start to kind of simmer a little. At 15, if people are still asking why vegetables are good for you, they're thick. <laughs> they haven't listened. That's that scripture in Proverbs that's like, you know, the foolish will always be foolish. <laughs> okay? I think we're like that with God sometimes, where we, where we actually ask really dumb questions when we should be mature Christians, adults. We shouldn't actually be asking Him why vegetables are good for us. He should actually just be able to say, do it, and we're like, He's good. So I'm going to, even if I don't understand, because at two, you've got grace for that stuff. You've got grace to ask questions. But the point is that at some point, in our household anyway, I am the dad, and I said so. Righto. Yep, down the hatch. And there was consequence to just not doing something. At eight, okay, maybe some questions are all right, but now you've actually got the ability to read. So why don't you open your Bible instead of asking some questions that are actually, you, you have the answer to. No, God's not answering me. He hasn't told me why vegetables are good. Did you open your Bible? Did you? Because if you can't hear them, I hope you can still read. Right? Okay, and at 15, you come to him with stupid questions. He's probably going to give you stupid answers. That's what I've learned. <laughs> or he just doesn't answer me. He just throws my question back at me. Why? Because there's an expectation that God's actually raised me smart enough to figure some things out by myself. And even if I don't know the answer, even if I get thrown into the fire, even if God is God. So I don't have the right to argue with him. This is what grace has preached, this idea that me and God are on the same level. Yeah, we're not. So when God says, Ash, do this, even when I don't understand, I've got to trust that he's not asking me to eat vegetables in the hopes of hurting me. Because God is good all of the time, even in his justice, even in his righteousness, even when he brings the hammer down, he is good. These boys knew that. You know who else knew that? Abraham. He marches his son, the fruit of a promise long fought for. He marches him up the mountain to kill him to sacrifice him. 
Why? Because God said. And I don't read anywhere in Genesis 22 that says Abraham fought with the Lord and asked him what his plan was. Lord, if you just told me what was going to happen in about 10 minutes from now, I'd probably be more willing. Just, t- just tell me it's, you know, tell me your plan. How many of us do that? Just tell me your plan first. Then I'll say yes. N- no. God's God. And we should have this fear and trembling enough inside of us that this conviction of it, that actually when he says to do something, we stop arguing. How crazy to think that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the heavens and the earth would listen to us be like, mm, seriously? If I had spoken to my father like that at 10, there would have been consequences. Because we knew who the father was. There are consequences when we stand and fight with God. And, and what I've learnt, particularly in the last three weeks, is that we have a position to fulfil, and that's of child. There is nothing that can disrupt that relationship or change that relationship. I will always be the child, and he will always be the father. And I need to learn a deep reverence for him because when he says something, even if it doesn't make sense, I best be obedient anyway. And grace tells me when I only have grace, grace tells me this lie that I get to argue with God about what happens in my life. When I only know the grace of God. Because either extreme only fear and trembling and only unconditional unconditional grace and that I could say whatever I want are not healthy for us. There's a balance. And we have to learn that. We have to understand that Papa is calling me to him and he does want me to know him intimately like a daughter. But he's actually also asked me to remember that he's King of Kings. And ultimately, at the end of the day, he makes the calls and I need to respect that. Abraham marches his son. I can only imagine what was going through his head. Because this isn't just a son. This was a promise, a prophetic promise, the fruit of a prophetic promise. This was actually fought for in the heavens, fought for physically, prayed for, longed for. Hearts were broken and empty and God fulfilled the promise. And then he says to Abraham, take Isaac, sacrifice him. I wonder how many of us would actually be willing to sacrifice the fruit of the promise that God had given to us. How many of us pray for a pay rise and then don't change our generosity on it? How many of us long for something so, so deeply that all of a sudden when we get it, it's not God's anymore? We decide it must be ours. The truth is everything that God gives us, he can take away from us. And everything that is given to us is his anyway. 
At no point is it ours. I think Abraham understood that. A gift given to him by God was still God's. Would have been easy for him to cling to him and fight for him. No, you're not taking my son. Are you joking? You tell me the plan first. No way. But he doesn't. He, he ties his son up. Read Genesis 22. He doesn't just get up the top and there's the ram and all is well. He actually goes through the process of being willing to, to kill his son because God said so. No other reason except for that God said so. Where's the God of grace then when you're marching up the mountain and you wonder why you're about to kill your son? Those questions get really big with no answers because actually the only answer to that is that God is God and that God's good and that he makes the calls and I'm trusting that because I have this conviction of who he is. So he ties his son up. He binds his hands and his feet together. Then God comes through. And a ram appears in the thicket. And God says to him, because of your obedience, the generations will be blessed. You understand there are consequences when we don't listen, but there are blessings in abundance in our obedience, even when we don't understand them. Abraham didn't wait to hear a plan. The boys didn't wait to hear a plan. Well, show me the plan first, God. What are you going to do when we're in the fire? They didn't ask that. They had this deep conviction of who God was and then acted accordingly. God is calling us as a church to come back before him as a father, as the king of kings, not two gods represented at different times. He's one God. And it changes the way we see everything around us. God, I've been marching for four days and you've not done anything. All I said was march. That should be enough. That should be enough. As mature adult Christians, that answer should be enough. Because how many times as adults do we now try to explain things to kids and the first thought is, I could never actually explain this to them. No way. Why? Because I said so. Yeah, but why, why? Because I said so. Yeah, but if you could just give me the what to the why, I'd be more willing to say yes. Because I said so. Why must I stand, Lord, and be willing to die for you? Because I've asked you to. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you didn't hear last week's message, I encourage you to go and listen to it. Because it dovetails perfectly into what we're talking about this morning. We are not under the law anymore. But we are asked to keep it. To keep the commandments that God's given to us. Why? Because he said so. You want a better answer than that? Because it's good for you. Why do I have to eat these veggies? Because it's good for you. We have to actually stop for a minute and decide, seriously decide, because it's a choice that God is good. Because the more that you profess that, the more that it actually rings true when you're going through something a little bit hard. 
the more that you understand that everything given to you, every promise, the mountaintop days are from God, the more that you understand that the valleys are with him too. We have to know the God who is both deserving of all fear and trembling and the God who also calls us as children to sit on his lap. But who he is doesn't change in those moments. I um, did a lot of reading over the last three weeks around the fear of God because like I... Like I confessed earlier in my message, this is not a God that I've been overly familiar with. It's not a side of him, a character of him that I've been familiar with because I am the kid who asks why 1,000 times. I am the kid who wants to know what the answer is before I decide on what my answer will be. I've always been that person. And God really has challenged me around approaching him with that behavior because it actually means I've got to distorted view of our relationship. I'm the child. He's the parent. And I'm required to operate as such. The fear of God is talked about multiple times, like like so many times through the Bible. But the one Jamie read this morning, I just love this scripture. It says, In Proverbs 2, 1 to 5, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight, cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. He who fears the Lord, this is fourteen twenty six Proverbs, he who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, And for his children will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. I mean, I I could read out like just so many of them. God commands us and teaches us to fear him. He also talks of his grace. He talks of his willingness to lay his son down for us, a prophetic fulfilling of Abraham's obedience. Generations will be blessed when we stand and know the fear of God because out of that comes all understanding and wisdom. We operate in understanding and wisdom. It doesn't mean we have to know everything It means we understand that God is God. Even if God doesn't save us, even if I'm not rescued from what I think will be my death, even if I will have no other gods, bow down to nothing else, even if, We have to understand that we are called to worship the promise maker, not the promise. We're called to worship a God who has extended himself to us in order that we would know him. We don't deserve it. It's not a right. When we start acting like grace is a right, we start to act like brats, 
like kids who don't know who the parent is. And guess what the world sees when we're doing that? That there's nothing different. I want to stand before God one day and for him to say to me that I feared him well. That he knows my heart is with him. That I understood who he was in my in my all of my inability to actually comprehend God is in my fleshly mind that I understood just a little bit of who God is and that I represented him well to the world because of it. I want my family to see the fear of God for our children, to see the fear of God in our lives because that's a safe fortress, impenetrable by the enemy. When we teach people around us that God is one who is to be feared, we understand why the demons don't get to play. We understand why actually nothing that speaks against God will have its way. We actually understand that the situation has to bow down. We actually understand what it means to die to ourselves to get rid of this idea that I have to know everything, to get rid of this idea that I have to have everything, that we die to who we are because we're actually willing to die for God. Something shifts in that space. Would you stand with me this morning? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. God wants us to know know him this morning in a way that allows us to say that of our situations, of our circumstances, of the people who would question us, of the things that would be called out. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to defend my decisions because I'm worshipping the God of the heavens the King of Kings, and he'll save me. And even if he does not, I will still worship him. It's just such a beautiful picture that God presents to us. No opposition in his character, He doesn't have to fight for his integrity. He is God. He is just. He is merciful. He is all holy. And he unconditionally loves us and calls us into his embrace. If you feel comfortable, would you close your eyes this morning? We're going to pray. And um, I I just want us to spend a moment asking God, 
what it is that he's calling us to stand against, not bow down to. What he's asking us to do, even if we don't have a plan. Whether or not he's asking us to sacrifice the fruit of a promise that we've longed for. Whether or not we'd be actually willing to lay it down before him without a plan. Without knowing what he was going to do. God, would you gift us a new revelation of who you are? Not just the God of grace, not just the God of unconditional love, but God in your fullness, would you reveal to us who you are? We stand before you this morning laying our hearts on the line willing to ask you the question what it is that we are to stand for. Even if. Even if. I exalt I exalt thee, I exalt thee, oh Lord, I exalt Father, we praise your name. We lift you on high. We exalt you. We stand in reverence before you and declare out loud that you are God, King of kings, Lord of lords, almighty defender, overcomer, victorious one. We stand as children, as servants before you. Willing to die for you. Willing to lay down our promise for you. Because you are good all the time. In every season. Would you bless us as we go about our weeks? Would we 
use our words and our actions, our behaviours, the gifts that you've given to us to bless those around us? Would you spark conversation about the fear of you? Would you spark conversation about your character? Would you put us in positions where we would explore this topic, delve into the word that you've given us, that we would know you more intimately for it? We bless you and we praise you. Amen. Uh, so God's been stirring me as I've been listening to Ashley preach. And about three months ago, or even coming here, so we, were, we came here in December, and it's a new church for us. And I was praying and saying, God, where do I fit? Where do you want me to fit? How do I fit? I've fitted in other churches in ministry and women's ministry and worship, but where do I fit here? And I was struggling with that. God, where do I fit? And about three months ago, I said to God, I just still don't know where I fit. I really, I just want to do worship. And he said, if I ask you to lay down worship, will you do it? Will you lay it down? If I say to you, lay down worship and don't pick it up again, and I give you something else, will you do it? And I said, okay, I'll do it. And I didn't, I didn't argue with him. And I've argued with him before. And he said, okay. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I joined the Connect group, didn't expect anything. It was just, it's jamming. We love it. The music roster comes out. Our Connect group's on the music roster. And I looked at the date. We're on worship on my birthday. And I said, that's my birthday. We were going away. And God says, happy birthday. And God just clearly spoke to me and said, you laid down worship for me. That's my gift back to you on your birthday. Sometimes we have to lay those things down. We need to lay down what God is asking to us to lay down without arguing with him. And God, he may bring it back and he may not, but we have to trust him. Amen. God's good, isn't he? He's awesome. What a word. Hey, the hammer came down. But a good one. Some capital truth in there. Some capital T truth. So take it home. Meditate on it. Listen to it again. Get it on the app. Immerse yourself in it because I can guarantee you there is something or some things in there for each and every single one of us that God is calling us back to a place of reverence and respect and fear in Him and a biblical understanding of what that means. Amen. So look forward to seeing you all at prayer on Wednesday. Amen. Eh? God calls us to pray. He calls us. And so we're faithful and obedient in that. But have an amazing week. Uh, may God bless you. May God keep you. And may His face smile upon you. Be blessed. Amen.